We are delighted that this week's podcast sponsor... Hold your horses there, ICT. <laughs> I'm going to do this week's sponsor because I have actually been using PE Passport in my school. All right. And I've got something that will make you weak at the knees. It reduces teacher workload. Really? Absolute fact, yeah. It actually helps with all your planning. It's all there for you. And, and the planning isn't like old school PE planning. It's really up to date. It's fun. It's new. Major vibes, really. And, uh, you know, the, the, it just makes the lessons more fun. The children absolutely buzz off it. And I'm buzzing teaching it because it's not the same stuff that was taught to me <laughs> 30 years ago. Uh, and also... You know, it lets you assess the children really quickly and purposefully, and that is, I mean, you know. Yeah. I mean, that is just dream stuff, isn't it? You can literally have an iPad, and you can just be ticking, bang, 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 and it's done. done. PE Passport, I'm telling you right now, it's a must. Right, there you go. So you heard it from the horse's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And listen, if you go to primarypepassport.co.uk you can get a free trial and if you quote Mr P you'll get an exclusive 10% discount oh yeah so get your PE coordinators your PE subject leaders onto this because it is like Adam said an absolute game changer Hello and welcome to another special episode of Two Mr P's in a Podcast with me, Mr P. And the other Mr P. And we have got another chinwag session for you guys and this one is an absolute belter. We were ecstatic. Privilege. (laughs) Yeah, when we managed to get this one booked in. It is none other than uh, Mr James Smith, um, who is a PT well, not a diet, not a diet coach, not a life yeah. coach. Author, yeah. best-selling Sunday Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah. Um, as as a huge following online for his sort of like uh, no, no nonsense, no nonsense yeah. approach to health and fitness. I like to think that I'm the the equivalent in education in some ways. What do you say? I would say so, maybe with less swearing. <laughs> yeah, so we will give you a bit of a warning now before we get into the episode that the that um, James does let the odds swear. Swear out, but the actual passion and what oh, he yeah, says, yeah. It, you know, it, the, the swearing just is that little sprinkle of of ice. Yeah, I think it just showed. You know, he's just genuine in what he says, and he's yeah, very definitely. passionate, isn't he? And I think um, we always say that this is a podcast where you don't learn a lot, but I think there's for a lot it's, of teachers yeah. who might have struggled getting through this first half term for all the challenges. I think there's a lot that James says that will really sort of resonate and hopefully um, strike a chord that you can sort of take on board and it'll help you, um, you know, focus on the why, focus on the positives of what we do and the amazing job that teachers are doing at the minute and school staff. Of course, yeah. I always keep, when I say teachers, I mean teaching assistant. I'll I'll have the back of the support staff. Listen, (laughs) I'm with your support staff. And also, if you listen to the interview when we get to the bits about uh, James's school life, it might make you just a little bit happy that you weren't his teacher. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go, guys. Uh, we hope you enjoy our chinwag with James Smith. So hello and welcome to another special edition of Two Mr P's in a podcast with me, Mr P. And the other Mr P. And we are back for one of our uh, chinwag sessions and we are absolutely delighted to welcome the best-selling author, social media sensation, and uh, and PT, Mr. James Smith. How are we doing, James? You okay? Um, very well, thank you. I think you missed off the accolade, probably worst student. 
straight, straight from the off. I'm sure if there were any uh, teachers listening from back in the day that uh, ever remembered my name, they'd be like, yeah, that's that's the one part of the accolade that's missing. Yeah. I thought, um, I thought the mustache was, yeah. was going to get a mention in the intro, is all I have to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll show it. We'll get on to that. So we always start these sessions by asking how the uh, lockdown pandemic and sort of 2020 has been for you. Uh, it, it started off very much with a pity party where I think everyone did. You know, we the first couple of weeks were like, this this is rubbish. And then I had my uh, typical privileged white response of, what about Coachella? Uh, then <laughs> after a few, a few more weeks of that, I grew a very big beard uh, and then realized that, you know, this wasn't going to change. And it, it was then at that point, you kind of got to adapt. You just got to adapt. And for me, that was getting a PlayStation. And... Um, rekindling my love for video games so most nice. most of which call of duty yeah and i got that i've almost protected myself from a global pandemic because if business is good business is bad events get cancelled i can still play warzone with the boys and <laughs> so uh it, it, yeah. i'm now in the, almost a few of my friends will complain about stuff and there's me sat up sat at home still gaming still able to do stuff so you know it's it's kind of a silver lining. I doubt, I very much doubt I'd be having so much downtime playing games if it wasn't for the pandemic. Yeah. It sounds like you've been spending lockdown like a lot of the kids in my school <laughs> instead of doing their homeschooling, <laughs> just gaming. <laughs> um, well, yeah. yeah. Think, yeah sorry. I was just going to say, I think that a lot of people have, have literally just uh, used this as almost like a, an excuse and no one can take it away from them. I never have so many men and children had the opportunity to, you know, pull a mental health card. Not that it should ever be used as a card, but it's never been a stronger trump to everything else. Yeah. I'm playing too many video games. I'm social distancing and I'm protecting my mental health. All right, go on, back in you go. I'm saving my grandparents' lives. I'm playing. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, really, really excited to have you. Um, and I'm writing, so you're living in Australia at the minute, is that right? Yeah, so I came here on holiday about four years ago, and uh, I decided after a few months, I was like, yeah, not ever wanting to go back to the UK. So my first stint here was about a year and a half, and then I've been juggling visa issues ever since. Um, but it's, it sounds really basic, but I'm just happier here. And although it's far away from a lot of friends and family, I'm barefoot a lot more. I'm outside a lot more. Um, I get a lot more sunshine. I swim in the sea a lot more. And these are all things that, as a British person, I never used to think I liked. I didn't even really like sand until I got here. If I was in Ibiza, I'd be like, oh, let's stay somewhere that's got a swimming pool. I don't want to go to the beach. Yeah. Um, but that's all really changed. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of situating myself out of here. And Australia's not, although it's a, it's a little island, it's a little haven where so many things go right, it's not a hugely innovative uh, place. It's not where a lot of businesses go to boom. Right. But... I kind of counteract my emotions with that because I'm happy here. Oh, good, good. And how often do you get back to, to England now? Is it just a couple of weeks a year? The last, the last couple of years, I've come back for a good at least four or five months uh, in the summer. <laughs> uh, business opportunities, seeing friends and family uh, or whatever. But it's probably looking like a, it's going to be a year and even more because right. getting to the United Kingdom is going to be fine. Getting back to Australia isn't. And at the moment, not even not even residents and citizens can get back in. Yeah. Um, 
because they've, they've locked it down so tight and the state borders are only allowing a certain amount of people in each week. Uh, that's made it economically unviable for airlines to do their routes either because yeah, yeah. Etihad fly to Australia with only four people in economy. They're not making money. <laughs> no, no, I suppose so. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm so excited that you've joined us. I mean, I've been a massive fan of yours uh, for, for a couple of years now. I think I started following you when you were just around, I think you just got about 100,000 followers on Instagram. Um, uh, and obviously it's taken off massively since then. Um, I think that it was those early days where you do those videos with the whiteboard and you'd be, you know, yeah. talking through um, dispelling all the myths and that sort of sort of stuff. And you've obviously had a meteoric, meteoric rise with, with your social media. So what would you say has been your sort of success uh, with what you've done online? Um, probably the, the, the audience, to me, it was always a case of knowing that a certain percentage of your following will want to do business with you. And that's always stayed around 1%. And if I, I'm very grateful I got a very early start in marketing. Uh, well, it was actually sales, doing like door-to-door sales, where my actual statistics for door-to-door sales were exactly the same. If I knocked on 100 doors, I made one sale. And that was selling gas and electric in Gloucester for N-Power. So <laughs> the, the kind of the way, the way I started was not so glamorous or meteoric, but... Um, so then everything I've kind of had at my disposal since those early days is about consistently growing and, and cultivating uh, a base that you can offer your services to. And like, um, I, I try not to see what I do any differently to any other service-based industry, whether it be a, a plumber building his business, whether it be, you know, anyone else. Um, I've still got to, you know, look after customers, chase up uh, potential leads, all of these things. Uh, however, the nature of this business is, yeah, it very much is in the limelight and I very much do have to intrude my way onto people's timelines on their smartphones to, yeah. to, to almost metaphorically slap them in the face <laughs> and say, look, this is what you're doing wrong. Because I've had to do this for family members and friends for years. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's just now on a phone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just love that sort of uh, no BS approach to... to just everything like health, fitness and, and and everything now, it sort of seems to be building into, well, with with your new book, that will sort of get onto. So, I mean, you started as a PT and then you've uh, you've got your online academy now, obviously building the, the social media side of things. You've got a podcast as well. And then the books, uh, your first book was a, a, a bestseller. I mean, what do you think has been sort of like your biggest achievement so far with it all? Uh, they all uh, they all feel very strange, if I'm honest, uh, because my life on a day to day basis doesn't change that much. Yeah, I um I'm still living with three of my best mates. Uh, I still get my laptop out and chill on the sofa. But the majority of what I do is not very glamorous. And even before writing the book, it was only thirty minutes of writing a day. And when I got slapped with Sunday Times bestseller, I, it 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 was a weird thing for me. I was like, you must be so happy. I was like, this is kind of strange. I was. I don't even have a GCSE in English. I've just managed to, uh, you know, develop late, late develop in my 20s and uh, get some recognition for it. But I'm not sure, really, because the, the scale of the victories changes, but the feeling is always the same. Yeah. And it's a very hard thing to get across to someone that where you say, oh, well, you know, that 100K felt exactly the same as the 600K. And signing the book deal felt just as good as becoming a Sunday Times bestseller. The, the dopamine hits that you get from any success in life, irrespective of, uh, you know, where it sits on this this kind of spectrum, always feels the same. And it's it's kind of one of my favorite things that I say to my friends. I'm like, 
them getting a job promotion will feel just the same as me selling hundred thousand books. And yeah. uh, although although people do celebrate the scale of things, I also like to remind them that we're we're celebrating the same emotions. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I, 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 that's absolutely quality to be fair and I think that's you know as 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 your your stock keeps rising you know keeping your feet on the ground I feel that you know if I was to have a Sunday Times bestseller you know I'd be out every minute <laughs> every day yeah. I'd be absolutely on it non-stop yeah Adam, Adam loves to celebrate for any excuse oh, any excuse at all so we've done like a couple of live shows for the podcast and like every after everyone Adam just wants to go out and just celebrate it like we've just you know blown the roof off Wembley it's getting to the point now though where my daughter will spell something right and I'll be like night out <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long um had a few ones about your name? over the years Say what? Sorry, I was going to say we've had we've had a few things to celebrate, and uh, uh, Luke, who we would have spoken to, organising mm-hmm. this, uh, he'll always be like, "Right, let's go for dinner." He's, yeah. he's about six foot five, so his fingers go like this. We go for dinner, <laughs> and then he orders some drinks. Then we end up going out on big nights out. But uh, when we uh, we actually didn't think we we're going to get a Sunday Times bestseller because uh, the fox, the mole, the horse. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know the, yeah, yeah. the that that was a hardback in the same category. I believe they only printed about ten thousand copies of it, and it was selling four hundred thousand a week at one point. Really? So that that book, book exploded. For, for like, I use it in school quite a bit. Is a good is a good one that one. Yeah. Then Waterstones made it book of the year. So I had a few crisis talks. They're like James, you you know maybe book two will get Sunday Times bestseller. Yeah. And um, Luke Luke comes around my house and uh, when we get told of like kind of the things we've accomplished, they're like, oh, and you're going to be a Sunday Times bestseller. Luke booted my parents' dog's bed across the, my parents' kitchen. <laughs> got up, he screamed. He was like, come on! It was like England had just won the World World Cup in football. My mum and dad were in the front room. Like, not really sure what's going on. I'm having my head grabbed and kissed. He's like, come on, we've done it. And, uh, like, I, I kind of wish I'd set like a third party camera up to yeah. show his celebration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And I can still feel the hangover from it now. Oh, oh mate, I can imagine. Absolutely. So what would you say is like the main motivation with what you do? What, what sort of drives you uh, with everything that you do? It's interesting. I've only discovered later on in life that uh, I'm intrinsically motivated by my work. I never knew the the difference. I never realized that previously I'd been extrinsically motivated by money, by the thought of getting a new car and finance. Uh, one thing that was pretty pathetic was how I, I got into the corporate world and then I wanted to buy an expensive suit. And I was like, you don't even like wearing a fucking suit, James. Like, why, why are you now... Why are you now thinking about getting a more expensive one? And you, you kind of just get sidetracked onto this, like someone else's kind of blueprint. And then you're like, well, I must, I must have to get more commission. I worked in recruitment. I'm going to have to close more sales. And you almost get caught up in like a rip in the sea and it, it takes you out. And um, then when I became a personal trainer, I was like, oh, the truth was I wanted to work for myself, work closer to home, go to the gym in sports gear and, you know, charge what I wanted for my time. And I didn't realize that I just stumbled straight into a world where I was actually motivated for the right reasons. Yeah. And yeah, I'm sure you guys are aware like how rewarding it is to see someone progress. Nah. And like for, for me to get in, get in like a, a housewife, not to seem like a misogynist or anything, but <laughs> getting a lady who is just, uh, you know, women having to bring up three kids at home, hats off to them. Like calling them a housewife is, is not me quite meeting the criteria of what's the right thing to say. But yeah. they've come in, they couldn't squat. 
So I, I'd work with them for 45 minutes to develop their squat. And then, you know, a few months later, I'd see them squatting on their own. And to me, I'd walk past and I'd be proud like they were kids. I was yeah. treating them like kids. <laughs> I was like, yes, you've got it. You've learned, you've learned a skill. You're now confident doing it. Yeah. And when, when you add up all those together, you kind of uh, end up in a point where, you know, you're like, fuck, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Your housework is smashing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, no, it's, and, um, it's, it's it's, sorry, it's a, it's a, it's a, no, that's right. It's we're on different sides of the world. Yeah. It's such a it's such a good feeling where you come home and you're like, I've just helped a bunch of people. And uh, when you get to the point of running a proper business with it as well, you're like, oh, I'm, I'm running a rewarding business that pays for my life, and I'm helping people. Yeah. And you then feel guilty because you're enjoying it so much. And I'd say they're probably the main drivers. Yeah, no, but it's, it just sounds very similar to um, for for a lot of teachers. It is it is that sort of rewarding feeling of being able to progress children with, you know, there is that moment where you, you get a child where you see the penny drop with a child, and it, it is it is magic. It gives you a real sense of yeah, it's, it's, it definitely is. I mean, I used to, I had so many jobs before I started working in school, and I worked in the uh, Odeon Cinema at the Trafford Centre, and you know. The reward there was when I used to purposely make a mistake with the nachos, so I had to faulty them off so I could go into the back <laughs> and eat them, um, which I shouldn't really be telling a PT. <laughs> but now it's like you know, you know, like you said, working with working with children, and, and like you said, seeing someone who maybe can't join the handwriting, and then suddenly you're practicing the handwriting, and then suddenly the, the writing brilliant cursive handwriting. Yeah. It does give you a buzz, like probably you know, on the level of. A Sunday bestseller, not that I would know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like we're, we're it's kind of like we're at different ends of the spectrum. Where I'm catching up with adults who, uh, you know, weren't taught something when they were younger. Like, and it, the the approach is probably very similar. Where they they come in, they're a bit petrified, you know, and you've you've still got to sell them stuff. You're like, the reason you're going to need this is for this. Yeah, and um, it's it's weird that. Some people, it's it's a bit like sometimes. Have you? I don't know if you've ever. I used to teach kids to swim when I was younger. I was a swimming instructor, right. and kids are so willing to swim. Yeah. Adults are the most difficult people in the world to teach to swim. Yeah. Because they they've left it so late. You know, the developmental part of their their even their psyche is is shut off. You know, they think that they've they've left school, so there's no reason to learn anymore. And, and that's it's, not a fear it's crazy. Of yeah, and also I feel drowning as well. But it's like uh, <laughs> you chuck a you chuck a kid in a pool, and even all these tiny motions they have to bring themselves to back upright, adults no longer have. They've they've kind of lost the ability like uh, to do it. And I never forget how hard and unmalleable I found adults to be compared to kids. Yeah. And I think that's where credit where credit's due because teachers have to put up with kids during so many hormonal changes when they're growing up in the biggest malleable phase it's like you've got to get everything in their heads before it starts setting Absolutely. um but yeah it's uh it's, it's we're probably in much closer lines of work than uh than a lot of people would think yeah i, I love i love when you're talking about like the differences between children and adults swimming and you you know when you used to chuck a kid in i was thinking <laughs> is that what you used to do <laughs> chuck them in there like, they're, they're they're fearless you know they every kid's got a good lung capacity you know and i'd be there i'd have five in a class and there'd be some that'd be afraid to jump in they'd be like i'm not doing it and then i'd be like right this this kid wants a reward you get like a sinking ring or a, a plastic brick 
I chuck a brick in it and the kid's suddenly in there. And yeah. I was like, okay, I'm like, I'm trying to trying to understand people here on a, on a small level. Unless I chuck something in for you to go get, you're not going to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was an old rugby coach that I used to have. And he was, uh, he used to always say about, um, like, it just being all mindset. And you, know, you win a, you win a, he used to always say you win a game of rugby with these top three inches. And he'd always say, like, if you had your mindset when you were a baby, you'd never learn to walk because that fear of like failure and the fear of like not doing it properly that you have as an adult, you don't then, you won't sort of act upon. Whereas with kids, they are, they are fearless, aren't they? And they yeah. are willing to give things a go and not necessarily, maybe not be aware of the consequences or, or that sort of thing. They're definitely curious as well, which yeah. uh, really annoys me how um, adults lose their curiosity. Yeah. Just to how things work, for instance, like, I, I think that probably one of my, my biggest strengths growing up was that I never lost my curiosity. But this 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 can annoy me sometimes. I was trying to sunbathe the other day and I got thinking about sun cream. And then I was like, until I understand how sun cream works, I can't relax. <laughs> so like through my whole life, I've just been Googling stuff and like learning stuff. And that's probably why I upskilled my nutrition and education on uh, fitness so much. So I was like, how does that work? What's this doing? And that's, that's how it should be. And, you know, when kids pull toys apart, you know, they're doing it for, for the right reasons. I feel that adults are quite stagnant with um, kind of their development in, in that kind of side of things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I, I've sort of already mentioned it with, with the stuff that you share online. It's very much a sort of uh, no BS approach to, to health and fitness. And I think the one thing that sets you apart from so many others is, is you're not scared to sort of ruffle a few feathers and sort of you know, debunk so many myths that are out and about. But I mean, it must, um, you must rub some other people in the industry up the say the wrong way. How do you sort of deal with any sort of negativity that you might get on uh, online and things like that? Well, the, one of the biggest things I try and teach other personal trainers is that we're not here to impress other personal trainers right. because they're the only people that are never going to do business with me. They're the only people that are never going to put money in my pocket. So right. from a business standpoint, me worrying about what the personal trainers think is is stupid. Yeah. Similar, let's say you were to you were to run uh, a, an after school uh, fitness PE rounders, big rounders tournament, and for the kids it's five pounds to join. They get to donate money to charity. Imagine if other teachers were going, "You can't do this." You'd be like, "Shut up! You're not going to come." You know? <laughs> as long as you could, if if you got. If you've got the whole borough to like, oh, these, oh, they're doing this thing. It's ridiculous. You know, they're, they're, they're doing fancy dress and we're offended by the fancy dress they're doing. You're like, we don't care. You're not, you're not going to affect the money that's coming into this charity. So the same way with the kind of polarizing approach online. Uh, first of all, you know, I like to have a pop at other personal trainers because they become so infuriated that they often end up commenting, engaging, spreading the actual message in the first place. Some of them share it to their stories going, this is disgraceful. And I message them. I'm like, thank you for the followers. And, you know, the, way, the way these algorithms work is the more comments that you get on a, on a thread, the more interesting uh, the social media algorithm will find your post and it will spread it and put it on to more timelines. Yeah. So there are so many things at play. And sometimes I even uh, try doing... Like uh, to me, it's sort of like a bit of a game. Sometimes I'm trying to learn how how it all works. I try doing a post that's going to lose me the most followers on purpose, like a saboteur. I'm like, how can I do the most outrageous post? And I do it, 
And then I end up with net growth of followers. I lose 4,000, but I gain 5,000. And to me, it's just like flushing out old wood. And then there's like new people coming in. And if I ever do like lose a lot of followers, I can't, it's still then a learning curve. I'm like, oh, and I'll do that again. Yeah. (laughs) The negativity that comes with it is like, you know, it's just a, a waste product. Um, and to me, I have to actively engage in that for it to affect me. Yeah. And this is something I, this is something I did recently. So I put a lot of effort into my first and my second book and I find myself sometimes looking at the reviews and the first reviews are amazing. Then they get a bit worse and they get a bit worse. And some of them, some of the one star ones are like, you know, it's so obvious James hasn't written this book. And I'm like, and I get angry. I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I didn't use a ghostwriter, you bastards. Like, <laughs> and I, I start to let it affect me. When every single person that I've met is like, oh, I can hear it in your voice. So, yeah. I'm like, so then I think to myself, I go on Amazon and I go to the books that changed my life, the best books, the Mark Manson's, the Ryan Holiday's, the Tim Ferriss's, and I look at their one-star reviews and I relax. And I go, books that are way better than mine are getting yeah. more one-star reviews than mine. And you realize that there are just some rotten eggs out there. There are just some people out there in far corners of the earth that have got nothing better to do than write a bad review on your hard work just to get probably a tingle in their penis. And <laughs> when I understand that and I can, I can empathize with that, like life becomes so much, so much easier to deal with. Yeah. So there are all these kind of like little, little tools, but it's about one, not getting triggered by people that aren't going to benefit you. And there's an old saying that don't go to people for criticisms that you wouldn't go to for advice. Yeah. And and then, yeah, there are always ways to dismantle it. Like, so I'm sure you two, someone might have like a pop at your work and you're like, uh, or, <laughs> and then you realize well, it. I was about to say all the time then, but I don't yeah. think it's still all the time. But Well, it was, it, we, we, um, we had a little uh, piece written on us during lockdown because our podcast hit a million listens, um, which was crazy with how kind of small it started yeah. and stuff. And um, uh, the Manchester Evening News did an article on us, like two brothers from Manchester, you know, uh, podcasters skyrocketed. So this is the first time I've had any sort of like, he's had a bit more, but I was just obviously looking for that night out, but we're in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, oh my God. And I kept just checking for that people who were commenting on it, like, oh, love these guys. And I was like, oh my God. And then we had that comment, didn't we? This, This guy who was just like, these clowns don't represent the educational system. And I was like, who's this guy? Yeah. <laughs> Let me find out who this guy is. And it, yeah, yeah, but I, and, and I bet you're, you'll be rubbing people the wrong way by the fact that you're uh, taking your profession and your relationship with each other and your relationship to your profession and making something of it. Yeah. Because it, it is actually to people's annoyances to see people do well. And it's, it's like a, a blown up example of people in a, in a couple where the girl starts getting in shape. And the guy, the boyfriend's like, what are you doing? What are you doing that for? Who are you trying to impress? And he can let it get between them and ruffle so many feathers that in the end, he feels that she's making advances and he's like, I can't deal with this. And I'm sure there are a lot of teachers like, I could have started a podcast. I could have been in the news. And you're like, well, you fucking didn't. So shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's That's it. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, So, uh, so your first book, Mass- Massive Success. Uh, when I first saw the book and it, before it was sort of released, and uh, I, I sort of thought, I was like, what is this, the first book, not, not uh, a diet book, which, you know, really sort of refreshing approach, not just to, to diet and diet and losing fat, but so much, it covers absolutely so, because I was just thinking, how's he going to fill a book 
when sort of the key message of like fat loss is ultimately calorie deficit. It's like, how are you going <laughs> to take that? Well, it's normally calorie effing deficit, isn't it? But how are you going to take that three word phrase and turn it into a, into a whole book? Well, in the onset, we were thinking about a name for the book. And I actually wanted to call the book Calorie Fucking Deficit. But then I was like, no, because that's that's not what I wanted to talk about. And I don't just want that. I don't want my slogan on the front. And uh, to be honest, I started writing it. Uh, I don't know if you know that when they make aftershave and perfume, they pick the smell last. Do you know this? No, no. So um, they uh, create the branding, create the box, create the colors. Then they create a scent that matches the brand. And uh, so... Yeah, when I was when I was writing, I've got a lot of useless knowledge up there, lads. Um, I, I started writing the book, and uh, my editor at the time was just like, just write away. So by the time I'd written about 20,000, 30,000 words, we looked back, and uh, one of the strategy directors at HarperCollins was sat there at Hawksmoor in London getting pissed. He goes, I don't know what to call it, because it's not a diet book. And I was like, why don't we call it that? Yeah, yeah. And it kind of it kind of clicked then, um, because everyone out there selling a diet I was like, let's let me sell like a like a blueprint, like a a guide to follow to not be, you know. And similar with with, with kids, you're like, right, don't talk to strangers, don't get in a car with get a car with anyone you don't know, don't do this, don't do that. And like you're you're trying to keep someone on a straight and narrow course. And where they would veer off, you want to curb it and bring them back onto it. And I saw this book as an opportunity to do that and to motivate some people. And I was actually quite reluctant in the onset to do it because uh, I thought to myself like. Why I don't want to write a book, you know, I've got an app, I've got all these, all these kind of uh, avenues. And uh, Luke again was like, mate, there are a lot of people that could do with this blueprint that don't, that aren't technology savvy, that want a hardback, that want something physical that's real. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was, it, you know what, I, I don't say this often, it wasn't too hard to write, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, it, it, so I've got to do this thing for Apple at the moment where I've got to talk about the challenges I had writing the book. Yeah, I, thought, I didn't. I loved it. There, there were no challenges. I just sat down and, and typed all day, every day. Easy. It was unreal. Yeah. That was yeah. Spell check. <laughs> yeah. So, so my, my big one of my biggest kind of uh, issues is that I say either, uh, but I think I believe the pro, pro, uh, the correct way to do it is say either. So when I do the audiobook, I try and pronounce things how I think they should be done. Yeah, yeah. And I had to go back in for the amount of times I said either instead of either or either instead of either. And I was like, holy shit, like, <laughs> there's such a complexity to even reading that yeah. I didn't even know about. Yeah, I mean, I suppose you can't get away with it in, with an audio book that's going to go out to thousands of people. But in class, if I'm reading a book and I come across a word that I struggle to pronounce, I just go... I, <laughs> and then I just move swiftly on. Well, I, I still struggle with them and those. I mean, you know, I'm I'm there trying to inspire the next generation, and I get picked up on them and those all the time. Even my wife the other day was was listening to one of the podcasts and said, "Listen, you need to start <laughs> sorting out sorting out your them and those." And I was just like, "Ah." Go and sort those them things out. Yeah. Um, so your new book, Not a Life Coach, um, is out. Is it November? Is that right? Or is it out now? Yeah, November, November twenty sixth. So uh, just over a month. Just in time for Christmas. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you hoping people are going to get from this book? Um, the new one. So like, there was there was quite a few people that 
could have done with at least skimming over the first book, but they wouldn't because they were in shape. Uh, they were like, you know, I don't need a diet. Uh, there's a lot of people that generally just, you, you can't really gift someone a diet book. You can't, you know, you know your sister's struggling. Here's a diet book. She'll be like, oh, fuck off. Go, you know, don't give me this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So there was there, there was always that. There was also other things I wanted to talk about, like confidence, mindset, fear of failure, fear of success, which a lot of people would have been like, why are you talking about this in a diet book? Um, and it's crazy that I know athletes that have competed at the CrossFit Games that don't have the confidence to release a product on their social media to their following. And I'm, I've sat with these people before, and I'm, I'm like, why aren't you doing this? Yeah. And it's obviously limiting beliefs, fear of success, not having the confidence, not having all these things. And I was like, I realized that my job wasn't done with the first book because there are a lot of fit people who still need help. And, you know, I put some systems in there for how I personally deal with anxiety, how I personally deal with, uh, you know, a lot of kind of issues that you might face in your life, but also ways of solving it. Mm-hmm. And it's one thing I want to stress is it's not a book of just motivational quotes. And there's some quite harsh lessons to be had in this book, which is going to be a bit of a wake up for a lot of people. But I didn't want to, again, I didn't want to be a life coach. That's not who I am. I'm I'm a person that gives people advice that they can take or not take. And it's what I've done for a long period. And it's so refreshing to have a book where I don't have to talk about macronutrients. I don't have to talk about fat loss. I don't have to talk about energy balance. And because there are a lot of people out there, it's almost a precursor in a, in a respect because you can't just get some people to eat less because if they're not fulfilled with their job and they're not fulfilled by their relationship, I'm not surprised they come home and eat food. Yeah. Like, you know, and just telling them to do less of that for me, I'm like, oh, well, I've, I've kind of not addressed the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. And with this book, I want a lot of people to really challenge their, their values as to what makes them happy because I was that guy that was in the suit trying to get the more expensive suit. I was the person that was in relationships and worried to walk out of them based on how long I'd been in them. And I was the person that thought I needed a six figure salary so that I could get a mortgage and and settle down in Bracknell so that I could, you know, and all these things. And I've read a lot of books in my time that have been an eye opener to like, you know, the real world that exists outside of this blueprint to life. And I'm hoping that I can pull a lot of people away from the paper on that. And, um, at least give them a different perspective. So it's very exciting. Uh, and, and my favorite thing is in the first book, I, I love coming from a place of objectivity where, you know, there's, I've got studies to back up what I'm claiming, but there's always a, a, a little bit of a kind of uh, something in the back of my mind thinking, what if I'm wrong? You know, and what if a study comes out this year dispelling energy balance, dispelling the keto diet, dispelling all of these things that I've claimed suddenly that that book's relevant yeah. and every time I, I say something on stage and i did a ted talk i was like oh, i really hope that i really hope the science doesn't change but with the second book everything i've spoken about if someone was to challenge me on it i'd be like well i've fucking done it you know yeah. i've done it it's worked you know <laughs> yeah. this isn't coming out of a textbook this is literally how it worked this is an account and i love the confidence that i have in it where i'm not quite so worried about scrutiny for for it yeah and, and when, when you were saying there about like the fear of, because I've never really heard that fear of success. What, what does that, like obviously fear of failure, but what's, what, what is sort of fear of success? So a lot of people, uh, same reason they don't ask for a, a job promotion, same reason that they don't really ask for someone's number. Let's say you're single, you're in a bar. Uh, there's obviously the fear of rejection, the fear of failure. But there's also a very strange fear of success where 
someone then has to lump the burden of whether they're successful in their pursuit of the number. You know, and some people, it, it, if, if this woman says yes, this woman gives over a number, it's going to put them outside their comfort zone and it's going to make them feel very uncomfortable. And it's a very strange sensation that some people are very worried about doing well and they lumber a lot of their decisions on, on the facts that they don't want to do worse. Now, asking for a job promotion or a pay rise, it's not going to lower your salary. It's not. It's not going to, someone's going to go, no, Dave, you're not. I'm knocking 10% off. Yeah. It's only got the potential to go up. And you've got a question, then why do people not do it more often? And a lot of people are, are worried about being very successful or getting the job promotion. And it ties in a lot with um, uh, people, what's the term for it that I would call it? Imposter syndrome is how it's spoken about a lot in kind of literature where you boys probably had it with the podcast, where as soon as you start doing well or getting recognition, you're like, I'm a fraud. You're like, we don't belong here. Don't I feel like that here. all the time, all the time. And, uh, yeah. and, and this is kind of tied in with the, with the theory of success. And I found a few studies in the book about uh, doctors, doctors, surgeons, people that are very high up in the medical field. They often will not tell their colleagues this, but they feel like they're, they're, they're given too much for how good they are. These can be the best surgeons in the world, but they often feel like they're a fraud and they're just there doing their job every day. But this happens in all areas of work where people literally feel like other people put more weight to their skill set than they actually have. Yeah. And there's strange sensations that when you when you do give people recognition, they feel like a fraud. And I think that can then hinder someone's ability to further become a success because they don't want to further feel like a fraud. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think that's something that a lot of teachers will go through when they go further up the sort of leadership ladder to, you know, assistant head, deputy head, head teacher, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Um, see, I used to always deal with that uh, fear of failure or fear of success when you wanted a girl's number by getting your mate to go and ask <laughs> the good old, the good old tech. Your losses. Yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, go on. I was, I was going to say, and, and there's kind of like a caveat to all of that where not a lot of people are really addressing the, the worst case scenario in the room enough. So if you lads with the podcast, if someone, someone wants to be like, oh, you shouldn't do a podcast, and you turn around and go, well, worst case scenario, we do it for six months, and if only 20 people tune in, then that's fine. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's all right. Even if it's just our friends and family, that's all right. No one's going to die. You know, a membership to even a podcast service isn't going to break the bank. But so many people out there are not starting podcasts because they're not they're not caught up on the success part. They're not even caught up on the failure part. They they just automatically don't think it's going to do well. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I was to say? Because I um, about five years ago went part time as a teacher and then started my own business where I was doing training in schools. And I had that exact moment where you know I had to decide. I had to tell my head teacher I was going to going to be part time or not. And I remember having the conversation with my wife. Because we've got um, nine, nine-year-old triplets. So when this happened, the kids were like in nappies. Um, and it was that, that you know, my wife was like, are you sure we can take the hit financially of not having the guaranteed work and this, that and the other? And I just always think it was that exact same thing. Well, what's the worst that can happen? Six months down the line, I can always, you know, go back full time. So then you decided to get your mate to wash your head. <laughs> can you go back <laughs> But no, you're right. Uh, I, yeah. I had the same with, with personal training when I when I first got into it. Like I was living at home with my parents. I just come back from Asia, 
And everyone was, all my friends said to me, there's no money in it. You won't do well. They were like rolling their eyes. They're like, everyone's a personal trainer. I was like, cool, shut up. If six months, if it doesn't work out, I will go back to my dreary, shitty job in recruitment that I absolutely hate. And yeah. guess what, guys? I'll be back to where I was before. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, like, it, I'll be living with my parents. I'll be working in recruitment. I'll be wearing the suits I've still got in the cupboard. I'm just six months older. And if I sit there in front of, you know, an employer and they go, why did you spend six months being a PT? Sorry, mate, just chasing my passion. So was about that. <laughs> and then the same with Australia. When I went to Australia, my friends were like, are you mental? You set up a PT business. You're making good money. You've got good clients. Why ain't going to us? I'm like, guys, if it doesn't work out, I will come back to Bracknell to work in the same gym. My clients will come back and I'll move back in my parents. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. And they, they didn't, they almost didn't want to hear it. They're like, you're crazy. I was like, no, 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 no. You're crazy for still doing what you were doing five years ago. When you tell me every weekend after a few beers that you want to be doing something different. Absolutely. It sounds like your friends were just making bad shouts all over the shop. <laughs> You'll never make it Sunday times bestseller. Why are you going to Australia? Love the beach. <laughs> See ya. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, one of one of my best mates, the, the very one that said to me, don't become a PT. Uh, about three years ago, I paid for his flight to come out to Australia and I took him to the Ashes. And um, and we're there, we're like, we're at the Ashes in Brisbane, the cricket, yeah. getting pissed. And uh, he's one of my hardest critics as a, as a bloke. And he turns to me and he goes, fair play, Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> bowling, Smithy, bowling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so have you felt any sort of pressure at all with this the latest book considering how well the first one did or was it you know did you just sort of sounds like you have this sort of mindset just take it you know go with it and keep building I'm excited because uh, if I'm honest I went I met hundreds of people on the book tour for Not Life Coach there were some people that took me to the side and they were like James this book's changed my life, but it was, it sounds bad to say, it was never the diet advice. Uh, I met girls and blokes who'd been in long-term relationships who were like, I've just got out of it. Like literally just got out of it. And I, and me, I'm there. I'm like, Oh really? I'm like, you read it? Fuck. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm like, sure. Uh, and then over like the last year, no one came up to me and was like, James, your calorie deficit, you know, that changed my life. There were some people that lost weight, but it was actually the advice that was non-fitness that really resonated with people. And you can get someone slim. That's not hard. You know, you could do that in a fucking prison or a war camp. You could do it anywhere. Slimming world, you even get people to lose weight. But getting someone to leave a relationship they're not invested in or to pursue a career, even if it's for half the pay they did before, but make them happy doing it, is quite a powerful thing. And even if the book sold less copies i'm still confident that there would be more people stopping me and one of the the greatest transitions i felt in the last year is instead of people going mate i love your videos they're like mate your, your book was excellent they were like it's fucking you know it's good or even blokes coming up to me and going my missus read your book and she she really loved it she's a few pounds down and she feels better and to have blokes come up to me to tell me i've helped their missus's life i was like this is this is crazy i'd never go up to someone myself and like, you know, just be like, mate, my girlfriend loves your stuff. Yeah, but so it's almost like the highest compliment to, to hear that. So on like that said, note, I'm confident this book will go on. I was just going to say my wife absolutely loves your stuff. Loves the book, loves your channel, doesn't she? That's why he's trying to keep you sweet because he doesn't want you to steal his <laughs> wife. <laughs> no, I think you're on a list. You know the list. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> 
You'll kill me. No, I've had, um, yeah, get out. Get, <laughs> get your bra off. Get out. <laughs> I've had some people say that before, and I'm I'm not sure if they're joking, and I'm just always brushing off like, haha. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were like undoing your pants, like joke or no joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, I'm going to put you on the spot here and say, if I was to ask you for your like top three tips on living a happy, for sort of fulfilled life, what would you say they were? I feel that when, when you're a kid and you're on holiday, you have to do something every day. You have to. Like, something, and if not, you nugget your parents. You're like, oh, we need to do this, we need to do this, whatever. And if you don't do something one day that makes you happy, you, you throw a tantrum. You're like, ah, oh, you've ruined my holiday, mum and dad. And for some reason, we don't take that to everyday life. We don't, whether it's throwing a tennis ball for your dog in a park or whether it's, you know, uh, pissing around with your mates or even jumping on a game of a war zone with a few of your mates, whatever it is. It doesn't have to be a, a huge amount of time. Even if it's just taking the skateboard out for a little piss about, we should be doing something every day that we enjoy on like an internal level, even if it's something really immature. And I feel that so many adults grow up and for me, if I, if I look back at some of the things that make me happiest, it's skateboarding down to the beach, it's, you know, j- jumping in the sea. If people can jump in the lake or wherever it is, and sometimes I think a 37-year-old man out there somewhere could be putting on a pair of Speedos and jumping in a lake in Britain, and that's making me happy, let yeah. alone that guy. Yeah. And I feel that, the, like, all the, the integral parts of, uh, you know, being happy and not letting go of these things – and I'm sure that even you two meeting up, the podcast probably brings you together to have a laugh at least once a week or however often you do it. Yeah. And suddenly it becomes a staple of, of what makes you happy. So I think that people really need to put a lot of onus on that because you can earn money, you can be successful in your job. But if you're not having these little things that would have made you as a, as a kid happy, they need to be certainly integral in that. Um, number two, like you have to enjoy your work or... You work so few hours with the job you hate that you can love your life enough. Yeah. I used to think that you had you had to love your work. But the truth is, if you're not gonna love it, don't let it take up much of your day. Like, you know, if you're if you're selling ladies' t-shirts online to populations that you don't even know, only do it for three hours a day and then do fun stuff with the other stuff outside of that. But a lot of people need to enjoy their work. And I guarantee, you know, someone who earns 50 grand a year uh, working five hours is way richer than someone earning 200 grand a year working 12 hours who's completely stressed out and maxed out. And, you know, we, we seem to see the success and happiness on this like linear scale, but it's not. And giving up more time for more money makes your life worse. It doesn't make your life better. And you then find that a lot of people who, who believe this like linear ship, they believe that's how the trajectory works. Similar with the happiness kind of um, theory I had earlier, where we seem to think, okay, well, Sunday Times bestseller, you must be this happy. New York Times bestseller, you must be this happy. Or, you know, buying a Lamborghini, you must be this happy. And I'm like, no, 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 there's there's a point of diminishing returns with, with all of these scales that we see. So if you're someone earning good money for a job that you really enjoy, be happy with it because doubling your salary doesn't double, double your happiness. When people pay you more, they expect more. And yes. I, I love I love telling people about this. There's a, a concept in the book called income satiety. And after a certain amount of income, people's happiness actually diminishes to these things. And 
if people were reminded of their wealth, their income before eating a bar of chocolate, they didn't savor the bar of chocolate as much in a study and they regarded it as less enjoyable. And uh, one thing that I found with a few, uh, I've been to dinner with a few wealthy people, they're, they, they, they don't enjoy their food because they're used to it. They always eat great food. I'm there like, this steak's amazing. This is the best steak I've ever had. Yeah. And, and they're there. They're just there for the conversations. This is normal to them now. They're almost like nullified to it. So for anyone out there, like the enjoyability of your work life is so important. And if you're getting paid to do something you enjoy, you've already won. You're already like, you're, you're a top quadrant on this scale. Um, uh, what would number three be for the good life? Um, I'd probably say, you know, it would have to sit within the social aspects as well. With what you were saying about celebrating your wins, going out and never, never stop celebrating your wins. And um, I, there's a concept that I want to bring back from what me and my mates had at uni and we called it the red card. And it was once every term at university, not that I studied much there, you're allowed to have one red card and the red card never physically existed. But if you pulled your red card, everyone had to go out irrespective. <laughs> and like, we'd be there, someone would be like, Cheltenham Rebs, do you fancy it tonight? I'd be like, absolutely not. Me and the boys would be like, absolutely not. And someone in the corner would go, red card. And you'd be like, fuck. <laughs> Get your jeans on, spray on after show. And we'd be going out there like angry that we had to go out. We'd end up having the best nights. Um, so yeah, celebrating your wins, doing something every day for your inner child and enjoying what you do for work. That'd be my advice. Yeah, brilliant. It's top draw, isn't it? I think, and a lot of teachers listening to this will take so much of that on board because... You know, when it comes to like stress of work and stuff like that, you know, things like celebrating the wins, the small stuff. I think, yeah, brilliant, absolutely quality that. No, that was going to be my next question question, because like within teaching, well-being is such a huge issue at the minute. And there are so many teachers that really struggle uh, to get a, a, a good sort of work-life balance and, you know, um, mental health issues in, in primary school teachers especially. So I think the latest statistics are like primary school teachers' suicide rates are like double the national average. So it is like a real sort of issue. And it's something that I try and promote uh, with a lot of the training that, that I do. But is there anything maybe from your new book or anything that you might suggest that if a teacher's listening to this, who's maybe, because I think obviously given everything that's happening in schools at the minute with the pandemic and, you know, basically you might not know this, but in England, if uh, one child or one member of staff gets a positive test, the whole class or the whole year group have to isolate for two weeks. So you could have it where the teacher's having to teach her the class, but then also almost increase the workload by then looking after the children who are working from home. So it's been a real sort of stressful half term, hasn't it? Yeah, it's been it's been the longest half term on record. Yeah. yeah. So I was wondering if there's anything that you could sort of suggest or that might help a few. No, it's it's interesting. It's interesting. In the in the second book, I talk about um, how there's a very strange stigma with, with teachers. And it's crazy that so many people could consider bankers or lawyers more important on the on the scale. They yeah. go, oh, you know, no, no one's saying to their kids, oh, you're going to be a doctor. Where really, you know, doctors help people, sure. But teachers get to mold the next generation. They're some of the most important people in society and you know there is this like invisible stigma of, of being a of being a teacher which I'm, I'm kind of annoyed about it's one of the toughest jobs you got to deal with parents don't want to deal with their kids they don't 
They, you talk to an adult, what's the biggest pain in your life? My two kids. <laughs> you put 15, 20, 30 of them in a classroom and the teacher's got to deal with all of them. You're like, you know, that's, that's a lot of stress to, to go on with someone. And um, I was speaking in the book about how, I, you know, like everything that comes down from the government, you know, it's just old people in cardigans making decisions. And I'm yeah. sure you guys are well aware of this as well in like, the education system. And I think it's Denmark or Finland. Uh, the kids go to school for the least amount of hours. They start the latest as well. Yeah, they yeah. don't have to be in school until they're six or seven. They've got yeah. fantastic like uh, grades. And there's some fluidity that I wish there was in schools, especially with adolescents, uh, teenagers. There's sleep patterns in teenagers shifts. When you're a kid, you're up out of bed at 5 a.m. and you've, you're alert to the world. But when you hit like 9, 10, 11, you can't get out of bed for love nor money and you can't fall asleep when you go to bed at night. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys remember sitting up to 1.30, watching Eurotrash and like downstairs while your parents are asleep. Eurotrash, um, what a throwback yeah, that is. Yeah. What was it called? What was she it was, called? It was, it, well, there was also Bravo and Men in Motors, which used to have absolute <laughs> solid showings on as well. What was the one? What was the woman called in Eurotrash? You had them. She had the, the, oh, the, the, like the world record-breaking yeah. chest. I don't what know. What was she called? I, I wasn't focusing on the name. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's, it's crazy that, like, we, we have, we've been studying this, five, and people have been studying this since the 80s. So for, like, nearly 40 years, we're well aware that adolescents have different sleep patterns to, to the rest of it. And really, the curriculum should change. The teachers that teach these years should be coming into school at 10, 10 11, and maybe finishing at 6. And, you know, kicking with the wind of so many things would improve attendance. It would improve concentration. It would improve grades. And it just means that kind of the old school, literally terminology of things should change. Now, I feel that half of what needs to change needs to be how the powers that be govern what teachers do at this point. Because, you know, you're kicking against the wind with people. With COVID, the wind is very much against you. And I think that there needs to be something from that kind of level that needs to change to maybe giving teachers less to do. And I know the other stigma is, oh, you finish at three o'clock. Yeah. And you're like, well, it's not, it's not quite like that, mate. Yeah. Um, but as, far as, as far as mental health, I think that being in a high-stress environment is, is obviously going to impede and it's going to uh, change and uh, negate a lot of people's well-being. They need to maybe focus on, on what motivates them. And to really think about that, because if it is helping children, uh, molding future generations and being, uh, a, you know, a, a pinnacle of what develops society, then they should absolutely just, you know, try and remind themselves of that when, yeah. when they do it every day. And it's a shame that the physical classroom, the physical having children in front of you, which is what I'm sure probably feeds that intrinsic motivation, has been taken away. Um, I can imagine, I, I can fully get behind why potentially doing it through a screen to kids is so much more difficult. Yeah. Um, this this isn't going to be forever. I think that's another thing that's going to be quite important for people to realize. But yeah, it's, it's got to be just about reminding yourself why you're doing stuff because yeah. I'm sure there, there are times like yourself, you're like, oh, fucking, I've got this guy in Australia. He's not going to be on until this evening. We're going to be up well late. And then you're like, hold on, this is why we're doing it. This is why, you know, and you should remind yourself why you're doing something that kind of helps the cause. But um, it's, it's a tough one. I couldn't, I couldn't even put my feet in the shoes of teachers having to do with that in the UK. And if tough. Yeah, no, no, but no, it's great that you, you fully back us because, you know, that, I think that's another issue is like, like you say, 
society's view on teachers of uh, and it was it was interesting during the lockdown because you know at the beginning of the lockdown all the parents having to homeschool the children there was like uh a sort of weak window where everyone was like, I don't know how teachers do it. Teachers are amazing. Give them a pay rise. And then I think like the Daily Mail picked up on it and was like, right, we need to sort this out. Let's just make everyone hate teachers again. And then it was straight back to that sort of teacher bashing. But no, I I think you're spot on there. I think it is always coming sort of coming back to that, coming back to that why uh, we do what we do, which is is really important. so the other, before we go on to like what you were like at school, I've just one more question because uh, I wanted to ask like your view on sort of like social media as a whole, because, um, you know, I feel quite conflicted with it at the minute. And I think one of your, I, I saw this in one of your videos and it's a quote that I talk about a lot in my training, because I think, again, it's something that affects a lot of teachers and it was, uh, you know, con- comparison is the thief of joy. And I think that is something that affects a lot of people with the likes of social media. And obviously, you know, I've been able to build my business through it and you've been able to do the same. And it's been amazing for that. But then at the same time, I feel really conflicted because there seems to be so many downsides and negatives with with social media. So I just wanted to ask, what do you think as a whole? Do you think it is a is a tool for good or do you think it does more damage than good? What's your view on it? The social dilemma uh, definitely brought to light some of the negatives to it. But then it was it was kind of hypocritical because it was on Netflix and it was the algorithms that took it to the top. And yeah, yeah. Netflix is the form of social media, as as is everything else. And you know, like and all these people saying really bad things about it. I was like, you used to work for them. That's your former employer. They yeah. probably gave you the money to buy that shirt, you bastard. <laughs> um, it for me, it really got me to think about. am I actually a slave to Instagram and to Facebook where they're giving me a slice of engagement to constantly keep people on their platforms? But I think it's a double-edged sword for certain. And within the fitness realm, I've always thought to myself, if, if you rethink about our friendship group, even in our towns that we're in now, we know a few people with apps. On the whole, not a lot. And then if I was to think as a percentage, 0.5, Let's say not 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 one percent of people genetically have got fantastic, fantastic natural rigs. Let's say that there would still be thousands to pick from in the world, but you would never get exposure to that. And what we have is similar to you know, uh, you know, when you have a sieve and you're like uh, searching for gold. If you shake that sieve for long enough, you're going to find something. And what social media has given us is this sieve of billions of people where the people with the best physiques come to the top, the people that have been the luckiest in business come to the top, YouTube sensations. And these, these nuggets of gold we're left with, if anyone goes outside and puts soil in a sieve, they're not going to find gold. They're not. But mm. social media has given us this broad spectrum to find these people. You know, the people that are the tallest, the people that are in the best shape, the people that are the richest. And suddenly, with the click of a button, we can tune into their life. We can watch Dan Bilzerian with the seven girlfriends. We can watch... Logan Paul, who makes probably 15,000 pounds a minute from his YouTube videos, we can see all these people and it can often make us feel very deflated. And if you're aspiring in the fitness world, you get to see, you know, these models, you know, and all of this stuff. And it's an incorrect perception of the outside world because it feeds our confirmation bias. And we're starting to see these things as being the norm. And, you know, if you're out there and you're like oh you know I'm, I'm thinking of doing this and then someone's already done it and they've done it way better how many ferraris do you see going down the street 
not yeah. many, but as soon as you look at one and you spend a lot of time looking at it, social media shows you another one and another one. Then your explore pages full of Ferraris. Before you know it, you're looking at 30 Ferraris a day. You only see one a month. <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's that on a, on a grand scale that really is starting to skew people. And then people go, oh, I haven't got a Ferrari. And you're like, mate, not many, no one's got one, statistically speaking. Yeah. Same with shark attacks. It's statistically speaking, we could say no one gets bitten by sharks. People do get bitten, but statistically speaking, no one. It's not worth even having a conversation about. <laughs> but yeah, one shark attack happens and everyone, people that live in Cheshire, they're shitting themselves. Go, oh, sharks. You're like, you live in fucking Cheshire. Shut up. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, right, like worst. So the things you do see on uh, like Instagram, Facebook and stuff that really wind you up as far as diet and health. What, what would you say the three worst sort of like diet fads that just really wind you up, that just really sort of like, what's it, grind well, we your got, gears? Uh, we've got fasting windows. Everyone's like, oh, what's the right fasting window for you? Like, the, the, they're, they're literally saying, oh, you're 16-8, oh, you're 14-10, oh, you're 12-12. <laughs> and I'm there like, this, this is making no difference. It's literally negligible negligible and everyone's there like oh you know my fasting window's got to change i'm like what is wrong with people <laughs> um so, so then there are people out there legitimately that are thinking to themselves now they're like oh maybe if i fasted for two more hours it's making no difference we got that we got body types where a lot of people are like, oh james i'm an endomorph i'm like oh fuck. like the the whole idea of having body types was blown out of the water in like the 1940s 80 years ago, we realized that was bullshit. And now 2020, Elon Musk is putting spaceships into space and people are still fooled by a terminology that came up ages ago. And all these terminologies and these, these fads are just to get email addresses. Before, yeah. you know, people that stopped you in the street and they were like, oh, can you sign up to our newsletter? They've just changed and become more uh, developed. And probably uh, the number three... It's not really fat. It's just people that post stupid quotes, hollow quotes, all the time. Kills me. And they, and I'm like, you're not you're not benefiting society here, mate. You're you're just posting a quote, you know. And it will say something like, "Stop being negative." And I'm like, "Oh, excellent. That's exactly what I need." <laughs> oh, I feel so, I feel so much better. Like, oh, should we call my therapist? I'm a, I'm a counsel, my call. No, thanks, mate. I've just seen one hell of a quote. I'm finished. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Funny. Um, right, so you sort of said at the beginning of the uh, the interview that you were the worst student when you were at school. Um, did you sort of enjoy school? Was What was it about school that made you feel like you were the worst student? I, I definitely didn't like school. Uh, when When I was in primary school, uh, I was I was generally just a bit slow, like to to everything. I didn't quite grasp. I, first of all, I don't think I really wanted to be there. Uh, when I first went to primary school, my mum turned around, went to the car park. She, I did a runner, literally did a runner from kindergarten. And my mum said you made it the whole way to the car park before yeah. I turned around crying and I was sent back in there. In primary school, uh, I was definitely hyperactive, and uh, I. I got classed with learning difficulties very quick. So uh, I got tested for dyslexia, dyspraxia. Um, I never got tested for ADHD, interestingly enough. Right. But I think that there's a lot of people now being classified with that who were just sleep deprived and eat a poor diet. And um, I'd have to sit in the cloakroom with the other kids, which then slowed down my learning even more. Yeah. And 
it's only in hindsight that I can see this. Uh, I, in year six, so I was 10, mm-hmm. was the, probably the first kid or one of the first kids in the UK to be given headphones by a teacher. So I was that disruptive. They were like, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, can James have some headphones to listen to music because he does work? Really? Yeah, I um, I also went through a pretty aggressive growth spurt when I was 10. I broke both my arms, uh, my both elbows and a wrist in the space of six months. Uh, one playing football. So I played rugby 15 years, never broke a bone. Played yeah. three games of football, broke my, broke my wrist going in for a slide tackle. Uh, I broke one elbow chasing a mate through class and uh, him tripping me over. So I was just, you know, like the teacher's like, I've turned back for one minute and you've broken your arm. Like, what, what's going on here? Um, strangely enough, in primary school, my mum worked in uh, the kindergarten. So my right. mum was on, she, she was on site. And they, she found out everything. You know, you could hide stuff from your parents. I yeah, couldn't. yeah. I uh, I'm just I've just got this mental picture of you sat in the cloakroom with two arms in cast, <laughs> earphones on, back streets back. All right, just like wow, James, you did work over there, James. I had two weeks between the left arm and the right arm, so uh, like I'm pretty sure the teachers were like, hold on a sec, they thought I was faking it at one point. They're like, your arm was in a sling that side the other day. I was like, now I've broken the other one. Um, and then when I went to secondary school. Uh, it was. I went to only two people, or maybe three people, went from my primary to my secondary. So right. when I was there, I didn't know anyone, and I made friends with uh, like probably the gangsters of the school. Yeah. And I'm from I'm from Berkshire. The school was in Surrey. Uh, I'm from between Windsor and Ascot, so I was quite well spoken. Yeah. But my teachers were like, "Why are you hanging around with these boys?" <laughs> One of my friends had like an ankle tag just before I left school. Uh, all my mates lived in like. Feltham and uh I was I was just a little terrorist at school but then if a smoke bomb went off or a stink bomb I was the first one to get called up yeah uh, my favorite tactic teachers are like this one uh there was one teacher who said if I went into the class with my, my shirt untucked he'd send me out straight away so I would untuck it on purpose someone in the playground would be like take your shirt and so I'd tuck it in just before I walked into this class I'd untuck it <laughs> and as I walked in the teacher would be like James you know the rules and she'd be like to the headmaster's office so I'd be there and I'd pull a really glum face. I'd be like, okay. So I'd, I'd, as I closed the door, I'd be like winking at my mates. I'd sit in the toilet for 10 minutes. I'd come back to class and I'd walk in and I'd go, I've been told to come get my bag and my belongings. And everyone would be like, ooh, <laughs> I get my bag and my belongings. I'd then just dart out of school and um, I'd go around the corner to like a, sh- a sweet shop. And if anyone stopped me on the way out, I'd say I was going to the dentist. So they were like, James Smith, where are you going? Oh, I'm just going to the dentist. Okay. So I'd go to the sweet shop. I'd come back. And at lunchtime, I'd just wander back into school. And my mates were like, oh, you know, Mr. Clough was my headmaster. What did Mr. Clough say? I was like, I don't know. I didn't go see him. And I'd have my, like, blazer pockets full of sherbets, full of sweets. And then um, it was, there, was a, there was another thing where back in the day, if you wanted to check your voicemail, you could call the house phone, press star, put in a four-digit pin, and you can answer it. Yeah. So I used to get to all the phone calls home before my parents <laughs> and delete them. Uh, so so uh, I'd do that. But my, my sister was two years above me. And the, because of how bad I was behavior-wise, no one believed she was my sister. So some uh, teachers would be like, Tara is not your sister. There's no way you two are related. And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, she is. And my sister became the grass. 
like, Mum, like my mum be there cooking dinner. She's like, you do know it's James's parents' evening tonight. I'd be like, you fucking like literally. My mum would be like, excuse me, and like we'd there'd be tears. I'd be crying, she'd be crying. We'd be coming back from parents' evening. She'd be like, I can't believe you didn't tell us about that. Uh-huh. Um, but the the last two years of secondary school were the best because my sister had moved on. She'd gone to uh, uni. And uh, every time I went to detention, I'd keep rugby kit in my bag every day. And if I had detention, I'd come out of it, put my rugby kit on and tell my mum I'd been at training. <laughs> so... <laughs> Hey, it works. It works. Yeah, no, yeah. Just have to rub a bit of dirt on your knees as you're walking in <laughs> to make it look like you've been at it. Yeah, that was it. So I'm, I'm, that's where I think that maybe from the ages of 13 on, I started learning, I started becoming intelligent, but not for the right reasons, just for trying to trick my way around the teachers. Yeah, yeah. Some of them were absolutely epic. <laughs> I felt like I was listening to like another Home Alone movie, like deleting the messages from school. Unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so were there any subjects at school that you, you liked or was it just everything, you know, was there anything that you particularly enjoyed? I love science, um, but I'd always get in trouble for pissing around with the gas taps. Um, and, uh, there was one time like, and, and there's something about a teenage brain where we just don't compute things. And my mate was on like, we had these round tables for science and he'd be on the other one. I'd always go turn his gas taps on and I'd get a box of matches and I'd hold the match against the box and I'd flick it. So it would set a light as it's on its way to him. And I'd be trying to flick in these matches. And he'd be like, why are you flicking me matches? And then he'd smell his gas was on. He'd be like, you bastard. And in my head now, I'm thinking, I could have set my friend a light. Um, <laughs> and then uh, there, was, there was one time, uh, me and a friend called Clark, we'd always try and make each other laugh. And uh, I, I don't know why I did this, but I put, I think it was hydrochloric acid in the fish tank, the goldfish. <laughs> in our science lab and the fish tank just went purple <laughs> or it went a really bright color and the technicians come running in they're like who put acid in the fish tank and i did it just as i chuck it in a bit to make him laugh i wasn't trying to kill the fish i was just trying to make my friend laugh and um then you know there were there were times like that where looking back now i'm thinking what was i doing i was just destructive yeah um i, I enjoyed crucial. that it's crucial that you deleted the um Crucial that you deleted the uh, voicemails. I can just imagine just like dialing your code and suddenly like, hi, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, uh, your son nearly just burned everyone to dust. <laughs> just like, delete, coming home, like, how was your day? Like, science was brilliant. <laughs> science was great. Uh, funny enough, French was my highest grade because uh, my French teacher taught my sister and she knew that my sister, like, we'd come from a, a home where, uh, learning was like of, of the utmost important because my sister did well in French my mum then got us a tutor we had to have at home uh, so my French skills were, were quite good and she clocked onto it so she actually sat me next to her daughter and passive aggressively bullied me for the whole term uh, which was which was good and then I got my highest grade and at the end she warmed up to me a bit but one of the funniest ones was uh, resistant materials where uh, the teacher hated me I remember now his name was Mr Crispin so every time me and a few lads would try and make his day as bad as possible. And uh, we would then take the keyboard keys out and rearrange them to make swear words when he wasn't looking. Because when you're doing resistant materials, you've got lots of different places to be doing. And sometimes I'm pretty sure there's like a plastic molding machine where he had to give that his full attention. And that was our perfect time to strike. And uh, we got a bow saw once and we took about half an inch off one of the stool legs on all the stools in the, in the room. And... Um, I'll never forget, he caught me once 
and he grabbed me, grabbed me. And my natural reaction was to dive, slam the desk with my hand on the way and pretend I'd hit my face on the desk. And looking back now, I'm like, James, you, <laughs> you were trying to get your teacher done for assaulting you. For me, it was a laugh. I was just having a joke. I'm like, like oh, the acting on me was amazing. I jumped, bang, oh. And then the te- my friends would be like, oh, Mr. Crispin's just hit James. And I'd be there like, I still do this now as an adult. I'm like, oh. And he's like, I know exactly what you were doing. And it would take all the, the, the onus off me sanding down one of the legs on the stool. Yeah. And suddenly I'm there for like covering my eye. And um, looking back now, I literally made some of my teachers' lives hell. And yeah. um, Mr. Crispin, if you're listening, I'm sorry. I, was gonna, I bet Mr. Crispin's in the bookstore like, Sunday Times bestseller. <laughs> it's, this guy. it's crazy. Like, uh, my, my, actually, my, uh, my RE teacher, uh, he reached out to me via email. I mentioned him in uh, one of our podcasts that we did, one of the Fair Points ones. And I said about how, you know, we'd be learning about things and I'd just be sitting there and I'd be like, but this is bollocks. I'd be like, this is bollocks. <laughs> and I'd be like, I'd, I'd say to him, I was like, I've just come from physics and what you are saying contradicts what I've just learned. <laughs> and I'd be there, I'd be like, I'd be like, it's, it's water into wine. I was like, we would know about this. I was like, this would be a business venture. So I'd be like objectively sitting there in religious education being like, don't listen to what you're saying. Stop writing what you're writing. And that's probably why... It's probably why I hated school because I sat on my own for ninety percent of my class. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd want, want you in my class as a student <laughs> listening to that. Honestly, that's some classic. Yeah, I mean that's the thing though about school. Like, there's so many stories that you have from you know. Well, it just that just reminded me of uh, one of my closest friends, uh, Domain. I mean, absolutely, what just so funny. I remember they had the DT room. Uh, like all brand new done and like all these brand new tables, all this brand new equipment. And uh, this teacher is making his way around the first lesson, just kind of looking at everyone's little piece of thing. And as we just turned to Domain, Domain had soared into the brand new desk, like fully in. And he's like, Domain, like, that's brand new. And he's just like, just saw himself out, just like walking out. See you later. Um, it's, what it's, you uh, it's one of those things... I- I don't think the kids are destructive. I think it's the curiosity as well. They're like, why happens if I saw this part of the desk? <laughs> but um, yeah, it, and one of the worst things, right, which I can I can say now because I'm a bit older, the curiosity was quite bad outside of school. And I remember that it's bad saying this. I can't believe it as a 30-year-old, 31-year-old. But I remember the first time I went to school a bit drunk and the first time I went to school a bit stoned. <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, I'm 15 looking back now i'm like james 15 year old james what are you doing but i had that big growth spurt at school and i got served alcohol when i was 14 and yeah. i'm talking like like uh what is it wine rack in the uk i'm trying to remember it right uh, oh they was, there served, was yeah wine rack was like if you get served there that's the place that ids you the most i'd got my i don't my stripes when i got served at wine rack at 14 and me and a few friends we met up at, before school earlier than usual just so we could drink some booze and see what it was like going to school drunk. So it was like the cool thing. And we, I don't know why I picked whiskey. I saw oh. whiskey on TV and I was like, this is a cool drink. That was a tough hour. And I was <laughs> naive enough to think that the teachers wouldn't notice. Yeah, yeah. And like, can you imagine walking into class? It's 9am and you, you smell whiskey. <laughs> and it was obvious. Me and my friend had just polished off a bottle before school to see what it was like. No, I couldn't imagine anything worse. Yeah. Not even in Ibiza would I have a drink before 9am. Um, 
Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah, I think that's the thing. When you are a kid, you just don't see your teachers as like human, uh, be you know humans who have who have a life outside of mm. school and are so clued up and are probably might have even had a whiskey before school themselves. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah, it's I love yeah the great school days, school days. Eh? So, um, what was your worst subject? Which subject did you? Was it RE? Would that be your absolute worst? No, because my RE teachers were, uh, were actually sound. I really liked them. So I was in I was in this. I was like, sir, this is bullshit. But at the same time, I'd actually like the teacher. Yeah. yeah. Um, sure, it, it would probably be English, uh, English literature. Uh, I'm just hoping I've got that right. Where we would, we, we read one of the Harry Potter books, but we had to do of Mice and Men. Oh, yeah. And classic, yeah. I've read a lot of books. The Mice and Men is the worst, like the worst. <laughs> and I sit back and I'm thinking, who is picking this shit? Because one one book that never got enough kind of credit for me was The Hunger Games. Yeah. Uh, I read The Hunger Games when I was traveling in Asia. And I thought the book was so much better than the films. And the films were great. Yeah. And I remember sitting back and going, why isn't this in schools creative? Like something where I would probably go home and read ahead. Yeah, yeah. How of mice and men? Lenny with the rabbits. No one cares. And <laughs> it. I wish that if just some things in school uh, were catered towards, you know, kicking with the wind. If science, I can't remember what it's called. Maybe like elephant foam or something, where you mix a few things together and it explodes up in loads of foam. Yeah, yeah. This kind of stuff should be done in school, not putting magnesium on on, on like the Bunsen burner, like. People are seeing stuff on social media. If schools could mimic that, you could create a real, uh, you know, uh, a, a love for learning. And it's crazy that uh, science I really enjoyed. Now I'm really into space as well and things like that. But I think that we could capture kids' attention a lot more if we had a more lenient curriculum, which yeah. obviously would be would, it would get abused by some people, I'm sure. But I just wish some things like that English were more interesting because yeah. where a lot of people have that capability to learn what they don't want, I don't. And uh, it definitely hindered me at school. I got four GCSEs in the end. I got uh, two in science, one in French and one in PE. I remember uh, just going back to of mice and men, because that's I think that's just everyone did that, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember, I, I'm not a massive reader. Um, doesn't really go in, does it? And uh, I remember my mum booked tickets to go and see of mice and men. And I was a bit like, oh, I can't be bothered. I think there was like Champions League football on. I was like, for God's sake. So I sat there in the Lowry Theatre, I remember I was watching of Mice and Men. But the whole way through, I was like, that Lenny looks well familiar. And I was trying to think, who the hell is that Lenny? And it was right towards the end, I was like, oh my God, it's Matthew Kelly, the old host of Stars in the Rise. I didn't, I didn't take any of, of Mice and Men in. It was just the fact that he used to host the, the 90s favourite Stars in the Rise. <laughs> Well, I'm not sure if that's a really uh, admirable career progression, if I'm honest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got a question here, which was, you know, uh, I was going to say, like, how much of, how much would you say your school has sort of played in what you've become today? But going off those stories, I'm not, I think they sort of answered themselves. Even though um, I didn't do well from kind of an education standpoint, yeah. um, my actual, my learning, my reading speed, my writing speed, uh, and definitely my communication speed. I, I think I was very fortunate to grow up in the era of MSN Messenger. Yeah. And so even when I was home from school, my reading and writing speed was pretty phenomenal. And I'm, I'm glad that I was very IT literate. I, 
you know, I'm very fortunate that I grew up at the time to go through Windows 98, Windows XP, all of these. And I think you guys are probably similar age to me, maybe yeah, a bit yeah, younger. Yeah, yeah. Are you guys? I'm 35. I've just turned 32. Okay, so we, we were very fortunate in that sense. Yeah. That we were almost like a self-educated millennial. Mm-hmm. And that that definitely played a point. So uh, I would I'd credit a lot of luck to how old I am, but school did help. It yeah. was something that was there. And I couldn't imagine anything worse than, the, I say school was shit, but what else was I going to do? Just sit at home with my mum. You know, it, there was no better alternative. So I can't stress enough that it was so important that I was there and that I was learning and that my, my teachers were still very patient with me because ultimately so many of them didn't give up on me. And I'm, I'm almost sure that if I hadn't have constantly heard by people in my life saying, you can do better, you can do better, and constantly being told that I was sold my, selling myself short, that it, it would have affected my trajectory because mm. it was crazy that it didn't sink in for years. It was only really when I went to college and started studying uh, sports studies that I was like, oh, I enjoyed this. And yeah. I can sit down for two hours and write a, an assignment. It, was, it took me till 16 to realize that it just had to be in the direction I wanted to. Um, and again, then my teachers at college, they they saw my capability of kicking with the wind and, and my PE teacher at school as well, who got me into rugby. Um, it, it Even though I say that I hated school, it's probably, no, it was definitely essential for the direction in which I've gone today. Yeah. And at least the science lab didn't blow up or it could have been a completely different story. <laughs> I, th- I think I've definitely aged a few of my teachers over the years. Like always, always something to be worrying about. Uh, whenever I was about, yeah, and I've, I do feel sorry for them. Uh, you know, it, and there's probably so many kids like me as well. But it, it's quite cool actually. I really like speaking openly about some of the stupid decisions that I made. Um, I got in trouble with the police when I was 13, which could have gone really badly. And it kind of put me on the straight and narrow because I was put on a, a reprimand till I was 18. So if I fucked around at all between those ages, I could have been in really bad trouble, like young offenders trouble. Yeah. And a few of the women that come to my events, they go, my son is a shitbag. He is so misbehaving. He's such a... And he goes, no, you give me faith that he can straighten out when he's a bit older. <laughs> and I think that it's... A, it's important to like celebrate the people that that do reach that kind of curve of success after school. Uh, I think that, you know, some of the investments made during the school years don't pay off until later life. Yeah, so yeah. that should help some I've teachers got, listening. And I've got to ask with MSN Messenger, were you a uh, song r- lyric status guy or was it the emojis? You know, you could use the text to create almost like a picture. Yeah, mine was star, parky star. Ice is cool, but I'm looking for more. It's your love that my heart beats for. <laughs> I um, I definitely would have lyrics in there at some point. You know, yeah. just like maybe say like Eminem, something like that. Yeah, quite. It was cringe ready. My font was trebuchet, trebuchet bold. I remember that. I could never take anyone seriously if they were rocking Comic Sans. Like, Come on, sort your life out. Comic Sans, MS. I'm, you're better than that. And playing Age of Empires. Um, yeah. So yeah. Good Sorry times, back. good times. Bring it back. Right. I don't know where the time's gone. We get, we'll have to we'll have to wrap up. I've got one last question. If you could travel back in time and speak to your ten year old self, what sort of advice would you would you give yourself? Don't get in trouble at thirteen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, because I think that it get, it's it's an interesting one because that happening at thirteen definitely put me on the straight and narrow. Um, I then. Uh, 
tried to, uh, I then decided I wanted to join the army. So I became an army cadet and stuff like that, which probably straightened me out a bit. Um, if I was going back to 10 year old self, I'd say, listen to your own music and not your mum's music when you sat there in class. So I didn't have any tapes that belonged to me as a 10 year old. So I had to listen to my mum's flipping music, which then, you know, my teachers had an initiative to try and help me. I sat there and I was like, I don't listen to this. What was so, it? Um, I think it was like Tina Turner or something. She said, know, with absolute stitch up. And I'm just there. I was like, I was like, listening to music can't be that bad. But then again, if my mum had Eminem or Dr. Dre, I should have been more concerned. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> Rolling down the river. <laughs> uh, well, mate, thank you so much for uh, giving up your time to speak to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so book, me. book is out November 26th. 6th, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, follow you on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, your website as well. Wherever wherever they can find me, uh, jamesmith.live would be the best place to yeah. uh, register for any events. And uh, jamesmithacademy.com is where everything, everything you could ever need is from me. But uh, yeah, no, thank you very much for having me. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed that this morning. It was yeah. nice to have a nostalgic uh, throwback to some of the times at school. Oh, brilliant. No, thank you very, very much. Right, well, take care. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you.